for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, we meet some of those behind the Oscar-nominated documentary Fire of Love. We head to Fort McMurray to find out more about the Arctic Winter Games. The head of an expert panel on long-term care explains the new standards introduced today. They say will improve the system right across this country if governments follow them. But first, more than six years after the tragically hit played their final concert, bassist and songwriter Gord Sinclair joins me to talk music, memories of Gord Downey and the hip, why he calls himself a reluctant solo artist, and his soon-to-be-released sophomore album. And a real special first hour for you tonight, uh, Gord Sinclair bassist and songwriter of The Tragically Hip will join us. Uh, I spoke to him a little earlier in the day. We're going to play back some of that interview. I have a really good Tragically Hip story. My dad was in the music business. He was a booking agent back in the 80s and the 90s. And I remember walking into his office one day in Montreal, and he had um, a 12-inch single, a promo copy of something. And that wasn't that common. And I picked it up and took it home. And it was this song. It was Small Town Bring Down. Uh, by a band I'd never heard of. They were new. They were really uh, emerging from Kingston. They were playing some dates in Montreal. I think my dad was, I think they were booking them. I can't remember the whole story there, but uh, Small Town Bring Down was the track. That's how far back my memories of the Tragically Hip go all the way back to 1987, which feels like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? Um, what is your favorite Tragically Hip song? We're going to play some of those tonight. Maybe your favorite Gord Sinclair song. He's had a solo album out already called uh, Taxi Dancers back in 2020. He has a new one coming out uh, shortly called Incontinental Divide. And uh, that's why he's talking to folks these days. Uh, you know, it's been a little more than five years now since uh, Gord Downey passed away. I mean, what a what an emotional moment that was for the entire country. Uh, that band who had so many fans across generations who touched so many people uh, with this combination of sort of honesty and and rock and sort of, you know, good old fashioned rock and roll with some real philosophy as well. And, and, and Gord told me that, you know, they learned that they learned how to be that band by playing countless nights in small bars across this vast country. Um, and they were buddies. This was a band that that were friends. You know, these were five guys who knew each other and got to play together. And this that collaborative spirit that they had, um, you know, was really the root and the hallmark of, of who they were and their success. I mean, they sold more than eight million albums uh, over time. Of course, when 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 Gord Downey passed away from a, an aggressive and incurable form of brain cancer, and especially when we watched that final show in Kingston back in 2016, it was pretty unclear what was going to happen with the band, with the rest of the band. Uh, you know, I, I'm told that, and Gord Sinclair will talk about this, uh, that Gord Downey had asked them to carry on, but they just couldn't. They didn't, they knew they couldn't uh, carry on the Tragically Hip, uh, the band itself, but they did want to carry on its legacy. So uh, Sinclair, who is bassist and songwriter, including of that track, actually, Small, Down, Small Town Bring Down, um, says he took his time grieving the loss of his longtime friend and badmate, and that was followed soon after by the death of their longtime road manager. And while Sinclair still calls himself a reluctant solo artist, you know, a reluctant solo artist, he is about to release that second solo album called Incontinental Divide. The lead single is called Ghoul Guy. It's out on February the 10th, and it is a follow-up to 2020's Taxi Dancers. If you haven't heard it, it, uh, it will sound strangely familiar and strangely different. He's about to tour this new record as well that comes out soon called Incontinental Divide. So I spoke to him earlier today from Kingston. We talked about the hip, the loss of Gord Downey, his solo project, and much, much more. And I started off by talking about the pressure that so many bands face to do the same album over and over again when they hit initial success and how they managed to not do that. We really resisted that, and, and quite consciously. Gord, Gord was a big driver of that. He, almost to a fault, you know, he would have been happy to never play the previous record and always be working and, and performing the current record that you're touring and the one that you're about to record. And we, and because we were a group, we were always discussing this type of stuff. We, we found a really good balance. Like we realized that you, you have to defer to your audience and you know what they're here to do. And, and there's different ways of doing it. Like, you know, Elton John goes out and apologizes before he plays a new song, which is kind of ridiculous too, right? Yeah. Don't worry, folks, I'll play the hits. And, and, you know, others, you get overly conscious of not getting weighed down or, or 
anchored by, you know, and only known for one thing, but that's, that's the responsibility of the artist to evolve. You know, so that, that lyric from Courage, you know, like, uh, quickly something familiar. That basically yeah. was the way we used to do our sets. We would play something new and then give them something that, something that the audience knew, and then we play another new song, and here's something that you know. It was a pretty decent little formula. <laughs> yeah, it was a great format. I mean, you talked about the familiarity of that, of having that routine, being with your buds, and you know, being able to write an album, release an album, tour an album, rest and do it all again. Um, that sounds yeah. like a really, in, our, in that business, that sounds like a really great routine to get into, especially when it's working. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really healthy. It's hard in the social media-driven world in which we live for an artist because an artist needs to go away. They should go away, you know, give their audience a bit of a break, but they should need to take a break from themselves and, and kind of rediscover their creative self, you know, that, that initial arc of inspiration that had them write whatever a good album's worth of material, you know, and you, got, you can't just do that sort of nine to five while you're posting and, and you've got to, you got to approach it you know, in a, in a methodical kind of way. And that's what we always did. You know, we, we were super fortunate enough while we were touring that we were able to take little bits of time off here and there and go home, like go home for a week, work three weeks, take a week off, keep the crew on, but it allowed us to recharge our batteries and it kept the show from suffering. Like a lot of artists that go out and we tour for six months and you burn yourself out. You wind up playing the same set over and over again until it becomes boring for even the people that are in the band. And it's boring for the audience. And then you come home and realize that your family's, you know, your key doesn't work in the door anymore because they've left because you've been away for six months. So there's no balance, you know, and balance is key to everything. Yeah, I, I don't imagine, I mean, I remember back and even when my dad was in the music business, the idea of work-life balance didn't come up a lot when it came to, when it came to touring and being in a band, you know, it was often those, uh, you know, those, hey, you're on a Northern European tour, enjoy Kenora kind of, kind of things, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I can imagine that, that it took a lot of discipline to, uh, to be able to work that out, to be able to try and find that balance over the years where you were in, also you just being in so much demand. Yeah, we again, we really had to work on it. We were always talking. We were always trying to be creative both on and off the stage. And that included our uh, with our management and with our agents and stuff. And we learned, we learned how to say no. And we were fortunate that we could say no and then come back. And then maybe a different opportunity had emerged. Or maybe people would wait for us to fulfill that opportunity that we said no to. It was all about the best way to present the music. I, I was noticing back sort of, you know, Last Town Bring Down, which is the what I was referring to earlier because I had that promo 1200 single that my dad gave me, I think in 1986 or late 86. I think it was actually, may have been before the EP was actually released. You wrote that. Uh, you yeah. wrote a lot of those early songs, but then I, I, I read interviews with you and I've heard you speak about the fact that what the beauties of the band is that you became a real collaborative effort. So no one felt like the weight of it was on them. You know, it wasn't, the, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like McCartney and Lennon or, or, or Richards and, and Jagger were, it wasn't up to two people to do everything. The whole band worked right. together. Right. And I, I, and I think, again, that was really, that was really key to the hit, being able to actually listen to each other both on and off the stage. And it became pretty clear. Gord was a fantastic lyricist, but he didn't, at that point, he wasn't playing guitar. So it was really difficult for him to actually start an idea without having a musical foundation upon which to base the lyric, you know, a meter and stuff. But once we kind of discovered that, wow, we we write much better songs when we're bouncing ideas off of each other. It really, it, it kind of the light bulb, the collective light bulb came on. And also the reality of it is you can't, you don't want to be in a band where, as John Fay, our drummer famously said, at the meeting where we decided to, you know, to credit everyone equally and to divide up the publishing royalties equally. He, John said, you can't have one guy drive in a Porsche while the other guy's, meaning the drummer, is driving a Schwinn, which I, yeah. I remember to this day. Was that's a great almost 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it's true, you know, and that's, and, and then when you, when you eliminate the stuff that breaks bands up, which is unequal distribution of money and credit fame and other things, the social stuff that breaks bands up, you know, it's amazing what you can accomplish, you know, when you don't really care who gets the credit, you know, and, and uh, we kind of built on that and it was, and it was great. Like I find myself back to square one with my stuff, like starting and finishing songs all on my, 
on my own. And, and I love it. I love songwriting. It's most my favorite part of the business almost, but man, it was a lot easier when I was working with four other guys, you know, that, you know, you could come with an idea that you thought I've got a fairly cool idea, but I don't know where it goes. And it turns into New Orleans to sink it, right? Yeah. Because Gord can put a lyric on it that or John can play a drum part that took a new different spot. And it was great. You didn't, you didn't have that, all that pressure. And it's not to say that I don't love writing songs on my own and stuff, but man, it's, 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 there's something about being a collective that's really important. You're a reluctant solo artist. And I, and I always thought when you watch a band, you sort of, there's this dynamic of a band and you always wonder which of them will be, will be comfortable as solo artists. It must be a big jump to be out there as the front now after all those years being part of this collective where you seem to really, I mean, I've seen you live, you have, you had each other's backs and everyone knew what they were up to. And um, it must be different to be out there on your own. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is very different. Um, obviously my the principal source of my reluctance is the fact that the Gord's not here with us anymore. You know, I, right. I, I love, I love being in the hip. We put the band together so many years ago. Uh, I went actually to see Rob and Gord play together in a, in a high school band called the filters and, the you know, filters. Rob, I yeah. knew Gord from high school, but uh, yeah, were they playing like uh, playing like old eighties stuff? Like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the second I saw Gord up on stage, I was like, "Wow, he's great! You can't take your eyes off him. He's a great singer and he's compelling and stuff." And I got quite comfortable over thirty five years watching his ass every night, you know. And it's a, it's a great comfortable spot to be in. And you realize it getting up and and, and singing and commanding the crowd is a real real talent um and something that i was never super comfortable with and and am only starting to get a little more comfortable with now uh you know grabbing hold of the microphone and i mean there was nobody better than gore grabbing that mic and saying follow me everybody the flip side of that of course is that i know gord and i talked about this with taxi dancers when it came out i know he would not have wanted any of us to stop he didn't yeah. even want the hip to stop you know he wanted us to, to carry on which is something we just couldn't conceive of without him, you know, but I know he would be happy that we're still making music. And that, you know, from my perspective, that kind of requires me to screw up my courage and, and finish writing the songs and just, you know, to step up into the mic and sing. Yeah. You often quote uh, Matador, right? That was, uh, I mean, you, you know, about being taken, getting the courage to do it. You certainly had, you certainly watched one of the best front men around for a very long time, but you, you mentioned this too, like you can't be him, right? You need to be, you can't be Gord Downey. You need to be Gord Sinclair. And that, that can be challenging too, because when you're looking for, when you're looking for a guide, you often look to somebody else and it's tough just to be your, I mean, to use an overwrought term now, your authentic self out there. Yeah, very, yeah, very, very much so. And that's a, and that's a process of discovery. You know, the very first, <laughs> interestingly enough, the very uh, when Taxi Dancers came out, I got the opportunity to play seven or eight shows, uh, but just acoustically. James and I went out in support of the trues, and, and, you know, then I would get up on stage and play electrically and encores. And the first couple shows, it, it was not easy, uh, you know, in terms of like literally old, old school stage fright. You get the applause as you walk on, and then it's deadly quiet. And it's like, oh, this is the point where I'm supposed to say something. And then you you, you sing a couple songs, and 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 I was it, it it took me a few shows just to get the stage underneath my feet, and and I certainly have not perfected it yet. And then of course, when the pandemic struck, it kind of like, oh, you know, which is really kind of led me back to why we're talking now. You know, it was a lot of unfinished business for me in terms of the performance aspect of it, but also the songwriting aspect of it. You know, I think uh, I'm such a big, I, I'm a, I've always been a big fan of, of live music and, and Canadian bands. Uh, and I think Canadian bands uh, evolve the way they do because of the live music scene in this country. We, we punch above our weight artistically, you know, uh, stand up comedy perhaps is the same sort of thing where it's a tough country to tour, right? And so you go out and yeah. learn how to do it. But it's 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 great, you know. the The audiences are, are super super receptive to live music in this country. 
Yeah. Oftentimes they know how long you've come. I mean, you know, I remember back in the day, my dad's band, some of them, you know, they'd be, they'd be right across Northern Ontario out to the West coast or down East or all the way across Quebec. And, you know, I would know from him, you know, that some nights were great. Some nights there was nobody there, you know, Tuesday, a Tuesday night in Val d'Or, you know, I mean, yeah, you learn, so. I, you I, learn I, your craft, I, right? That exactly colors why Canadians punch above their weight in terms of live performance. Um, because you learn, you know, frankly, you learn how to suck, right? Because there's <laughs> always a Tuesday night and a Wednesday night in a quarter-filled room. And you learn fairly quickly that, wow, it's it's easy to play a big city on a Friday, Saturday night where just by sheer population, chances are you're going to have a decent turnout. But to learn how to play a quarter-empty room in Kenora or Valdor or Stephenville yeah. and to play it like it's packed, and then to realize when you come back in a year or two, it is packed. And then you then you know you're on to something. I think that's great. I think that's a really important part of our culture that we we lose at our, our peril. Yeah. Gord Sinclair of the Tragically Hip, formerly of the Tragically Hip. It's always tough to say those words, Gord. Um, okay. Is with us these days. I still, I still technically feel like I am in the Tragically you, Yeah, you always will be, you know, but the New Soul album is coming out. I wanted to ask you a bit, I mean, I'm really interested in where Ghoul Guy comes from, because I know a lot of people want to know about what a taxi dancer was, and I looked that up. Um, but tell yeah. me what it was like. The I just, I mean, we all watched the final tour. I'm out here in Victoria. You started the tour here, and when it came to an end in Kingston, I I think a lot of fans watched and thought, well, what now? And not just watching, you know, Gord Downey, but also watching the rest of you and thinking, well, what now? Like, what do you do now? How, how do you process that uh, after having lived through, and I can't imagine what it was like on stage. Uh, how long did that take and what did it take? Well, we had a really comfortable routine in our career with the hip. You know, we would, we would write a record, go out and record it generally tour it for a better part of a year, kind of working three weeks on, one week off. It's almost like we developed like an artistic and biological clock that was based by it. And, and that last show at Kingston, it was a really important event <laughs> for us. And it was well-timed. I'm glad we finished in Kingston because obviously it was super, super emotional, but because it was our hometown, mums and dads and brothers and sisters and friends from all over were there. You know, the demands of that evening kind of distracted me anyway, and I'm sure the other guys who reinforced this idea, it distracted me away from the very fact that, wow, this is the last time that we're ever going to do this. And that, that started to sink in about a week afterwards, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you realize that, wow, that was really it. And it was, it was a difficult time for a long time. But then, you know, time passes on, and then... I got to the point where, okay, now in, in, the, in terms of the touring, our normal business schedule, I should be getting together with the guys and start writing a record now. And that's when it really struck me that, oh, that's gone too. And then I sort of said, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to stop writing. I know Gord would wanted any of us to stop doing what we were doing. And I started to write tunes, started to come out. And it really wasn't until... Uh, for taxi dances, I wrote a song called "In the Next Life," where I we right. lost Gord, and, and four or five months afterwards, uh, our old road manager, who was like our you know our, our, our the sixth member of our group when we left university, he also died, and um, it was the first time I think that I'd adequately conveyed what my emotions were about that. And I played the song for my buddy James McKenty and said, "I'm thinking about making a record. What do you think?" And that became sort of the linchpin. And and um, so I, I basically tried to kind of carry that on, you know. I, I I just it's a big part of who I am. I love the writing process, and um, you know, fast forward to uh, Incontinental Drift, which is the next record coming out. And right. like everybody else, in, during the pandemic, I had an awful lot of time on my hands and no place to go. And I was really fortunate that. There was still sports on TV and my family are understanding and I noodle around on the guitar and, and I was able to write songs. I, I, I can't imagine what folks without that kind of creative facility would have gone through during this pandemic, you know, um, just because I, I used it as my psychotherapy, honestly, to, to, to get it all out, my frustrations, my anger, my sadness. And so. Yeah, it's, it's obviously 
therapeutic, right? To do what you to do what you love. I mean, I think a lot of us 100%. try 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 through the pandemic. Wasn't always wasn't always easy. Uh, tell me about the new record. I mean, I, I know I, having listened to Taxi Dancer, you know, it's not a hip album. It isn't, but but it's your album, and it and there's a lot of you can you can hear a lot in there that's very familiar, and yet it is different. And I imagine that was, you know, that's part of what you're trying to put out there. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I I, I was in the hip for an awful long time, and the great thing about our songwriting process is that, uh, you know, in various degrees, um, you can hear everyone's contribution from the guys in the group in every song that we ever did. Some songs were just a couple guys writing. But we, when we came together to put it, to put a song down, it wasn't a hip song until John played the drum part. And in fact, during the writing process, often what, you know, John would lay something down or, or whoever would take the song in a completely different direction than maybe the original intention was. And that's what made it. And I think, you know, you can hear the way I play the bass and the way I heard chord progressions and stuff in a lot of the hip songs. And that's, going to be in the solo stuff as well lyrically obviously they were big shoes to fill in terms of songwriting you know i i, I said yeah. in interviews before like when you when you're in a group with Gord down using your lyricist you can't turn around and write yummy 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 i've got love in my tummy and right. respect to get away with yeah, it, sugar you know? sugar right yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah. you know gangham style you know yeah, exactly. so yeah. it's like and again that's part of how I learned songwriting as a young man until my adulthood was, was watching Gord write, watching his process and, and having him bounce lyrics off of me and, and really understanding the, the depth to which he would work on every single word that went into every single line, you know, that went into every single song. And, and in my own way, again, I'm not trying to be him, but I'm trying to write something that has some meaning primarily to me first, but when it's done well, as I've experienced with the hit, it resonates. It has the potential to resonate with other people. And that's what good tunes are supposed to be. Uh, so the lead single is called Ghoul Guy. Of course, I, I immediately wrote it as Cool Guy um, when I was putting together the notes for this interview. What is a ghoul guy? It was actually the last, the last song that I wrote for the record. I'm trying to recall the young lady's name. I think it was Frances Hogan. Um, Anyway, she was the right. whistleblower for, for Facebook. Right, of course. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Big story in the midst of the pandemic. And, and, and anyway, yeah. when I heard her discuss what the, the metrics were at a company like Facebook and that they actually purposefully manipulated uh, the tenor of online conversations in, in order to raise advertising revenue, I just thought, like, wow, how absolutely evil that is. You know, not accidentally. Evil, but very consciously trying to, you know, under the auspices of trying to create this bigger, larger global community. It's all a fraud. It's really just to sell stuff. And, to, you know, when she was discussing that they realized that controversial topics and, and, and negative stories and stuff actually generated more clicks, which generated more revenue, and that the company wanted to, to build on top of that, I thought, wow, that's absolutely monstrous. Ergo, ghoulish. Ghoulish, and, right? And, and I, I think a lot of that is kind of characterized throughout that kind of tech bro world, you know, where you've got this cult of the founder. From there, the song came up pretty quick. Like, I'm kind of by nature a skeptical guy and, you know, lean towards cynicism maybe a little more than I should. But but these are cynical times. And, and I uh, I just harken back to my youth where, you know, I was a big Clash fan, and uh, yeah. there's no way Joe Strummer, St. Joe, would let that slip without saying something on an artistic level, you know? So that's really what the idea of Ghoul Guy was. I just sort of changed the C to a G and and be that as it may. I mean, I don't, I'm under no illusions that he'll ever get to Mr. Zuckerberg's desk or anything <laughs> like that. But man, it well. maybe, yeah, maybe if you had a little look in the mirror every once in a while, it might be not a bad thing, you know? Yeah, I was noticing you talk about Tom Verlaine of uh, television uh, passing away the other day, speaking of, and I was listening to Marky Moon because my, you know, at home we had that album a lot and that track Marky Moon is such an amazing track. And I noticed, not in retrospect, I noticed some parallels between how they sounded and how you sounded and not, not no disrespect, but I'm like, wow, like I'd never really put the two and two together. And it was odd. Cause I guess I just hadn't listened to television since I was a kid. 
Yeah. Well, I listen, I, I, I appreciate that. I really, really do. Like when I was Marky Moon and, and Adventure were big records for, for me growing up. Like Rob, Rob Baker and I lived across the street from each other. Right. Uh, it was pre video arcade days. I'm dating myself, but I'm dating myself. You know, when I was 15, 16, I was, I'd moved from the, you know, the, the drive of the Stones to the drive of the Sex Pistols, you know, right. and then. Then, then to, the, to a group like The Clash, where there was a lot of meat on their bones lyrically and musically. And then along came television. Obviously, you start reading about this burgeoning punk scene in, in New York and, and the Ramones, led by the Ramones. And I, but I, I never loved the Ramones lyrically. And then television emerged. It's like, wow, there's a real kind of an art punk band. They reminded me so much of, of Captain Beefheart, who I absolutely loved growing right. up as well. It was just unusual and yet really, really compelling, like great, great melodies, great lyrics, great playing, undersung, you know, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, we listen, I listened to Adventure in particular tons and tons and tons. Yeah, I, just, I, I think that was their attempt when they were with Electra. Someone from the record company must have been breathing down their necks to try <laughs> to write a single. And you know, not so a ten-minute one necessarily <laughs> ten minutes long, and yeah, you know, exactly. um, and it resonates with me. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll when I'm in the mood, I'll, I'll put those records on again. And uh, the guy I'm making records with now, James McKenty, uh, yep. we kind of came together on groups like Beefheart and, and 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 television. Really, just so 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 great. The undoing of most of those groups was the fact that they never, you know, it was all always my song, your song, my solo your solo and, and regardless they their their output television just wonderful and what an amazing guitar player and, and what a loss yeah absolutely I, yeah i could just imagine the guy at electra telling tom verlaine listen you need to write my sharona for your next another my sharona yeah. for your for your next record yeah. Are, you're heading out on tour i would imagine last question for you i mean you'll be going out and and uh, people can will get a chance to see you tour this record you're going to get back into a bit of that rhythm right yeah, yeah, super looking forward to it. I mean, the the, the plan was with Taxi Dancers, uh, we we got the opportunity to play acoustically when the when the trues went out. James and I went out with them to support, got a couple shows under my belt, which is great. But the idea was to always realize the songs electrically on stage. I mean, music is meant to be performed live. Uh, you know, I've lived that. I truly believe it, and I wanted to get there myself. And that obviously, with the pandemic, got a little forestalled so the, the the idea is to go back out uh and and to this record ironically in fact our very first show we drove almost eight hours in a blinding snowstorm to get to a venue to find out that the show had been canceled really this is why are we doing this again we went down into toronto take a night off went to the rex to see a jazz band play and the drummer blew our minds. And it turned out a guy named Jeff Halischuk, we introduced ourselves afterwards, had a beer, said, hey, if I ever go back and make another record, you know, would you lower your standards and come play with a rock and roller instead of a jazz band? He said, yeah. And it turns out, yeah. So Jeff actually played on uh, Incontinental Drift. He was the drummer. And he's going to come out and play with us. My son, younger son, Elliot, is a fantastic musician. He's going to handle the bass. One of the things I discovered fairly quickly is that it's hard to sing and play bass at the same time. So hats off to Sting and, and uh, Lemmy and uh, right. I'm playing guitar. He's playing bass and a little four piece rock and roll outfit. We're going to go out and hit the road uh, starting in the spring. It's going to be cool. Awesome. And I guess everyone always asks you, but I guess for under certain circumstances, maybe the hip would play together again, if it was charitable or something, something, the right yeah. moment, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I've always been in the never say never camp. You know, one of the things of that last tour you know, Gordon was real sick and uh, real problems with his memory. You know, here's a guy who made his made his living and wrote some beautiful songs. I uh, couldn't remember them, so we, we had uh, teleprompters everywhere to, to jar his memory. There were moments out there on that last tour where you know he'd drop a lyric and he realized that the resonance that the music and his words and his melodies had with people because everyone's singing along and right. realize how special that is as part of the composition team, you know, to know that your music has that kind of resonance with people. And, and so, you know, knowing that it's, that's where it rests with the national imagination and with, with people, you know, I, I would never say never, particularly if we have the opportunity to get folks together for the right cause at the right time, you know, I, I, 
undertaken. And, you know, and frankly, I miss playing with the guys. You know, I really, really do. That was the hardest thing about venturing into this was like wondering whether I could actually play without Johnny, you know, as a bass player. Gord Sinclair, the bass player, songwriter uh, with the Tragically Hip for so many years. Now uh, embarking, uh, has already embarked on a solo career. The first album back in 2020 was called Taxi Dancers. There's a new album due out imminently called Incontinental Divide. The first single is called Ghoul Guy. He explained what that was all about earlier. I spoke to him earlier today from Kingston. It really was um, such a... One of the things that was always so appealing about the Tragically Hip, whether or not you really loved their music or not, it was really hard not to love the band. There was something so genuinely appealing about the way they treated each other, the respect they had for each other as a band, uh, the way that they collaborated as a band, the way that they shared songwriting critics uh, credits rather as a band. As he mentioned, it was the drummer many, many decades ago who said, you know, bands don't work if one person's driving a Porsche and the other is driving a Schwinn, a bike, right? So it was really um, interesting to hear what Gord Sinclair has been up to for the past five years, the past six years since that final hip show in Kingston back in 2016. And the challenge, both in a good way and a bad way, of trying to find your voice, trying to find your music again. I am never afraid because I have seen so much eruptions in 23 years that um, <laughs> even if I die tomorrow, I don't care. Those were the faded words of Maurice Kraft. He and his wife Katia became perhaps the most noted and noteworthy volcanologists, people who study volcanoes of their time traveling around the world in the 60s and the 70s to capture images and 80s, to capture images and data, often risking their lives by coming within mere meters of lava flows. Their footage that they took around the world is mesmerizing. It is mesmerizing how close they would come to lava flows. And they did a lot of scientific work at the same time as well. They went to places that no one had been been before, or really no one had documented in the way that they did before. So not only did they provide this incredible imagery, not only did they advance the science and the understanding of volcanoes, uh, behind their work was something just as remarkable, at least as far as a story is concerned, and that was their bond. Um, They met on a blind date, I believe, at a coffee shop when they were young, uh, in their teens still, and their love, their passion for volcanoes, their obsession perhaps, is really what this documentary, now nominated for an Academy Award called the Academy Award called The Fire of Love, is all about. It uses footage taken by them mostly, and also some of them to try to show more because they rarely turn the camera on themselves, uh, but of them as well to try to craft a tale of lives, the life of a couple spent literally playing with fire. And their deaths in 1991, along with dozens of others, following the eruption of Mount Unzen in Japan. Um, Here's a bit of the trailer of the National Geographic documentary. This is Katya, and this is Maurice. (laughs) Tomorrow will be their last day. They will leave behind hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos, and a million questions. Alone, they could only dream of volcanoes. Together, they can reach them. They meet on a blind date at a cafe. From here on out, life will only be volcanoes, volcanoes, volcanoes. That gives you an idea of what it's about, but it's the footage that is absolutely remarkable. And of course, the story behind their endeavors and ultimately their deaths. Um, It is directed by an American and features a couple that were from France, but there is a true Canadian connection to this as well, including in the 
production, the producing side, and on the writing and editing. And joining me now are one of the film's producers and writers, Shane Boris, and Canadian writer and editor, Jocelyn Chaput. Uh, the film has already been nominated and won several awards, including the Chicago Film and Seattle Film Critics Awards, and uh, for Best Documentary. And, and at the Oppenheim Editing Awards at the Sundance Film Festival, so that award for editing. And, of course, it's up for an Oscar. Uh, and uh, Boris and Justin join me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, this is, uh, Shane, I, I, I guess I'll start with you. This is such a remarkable, remarkable story. It's about a lot of things. What, what, what interested you about, about this tale that has been told before, but not quite in this way? Yeah, I think when when we first came across the footage, we were we were obviously completely enthralled, mesmerized, stunned by by what the crafts were able to capture on film and the the experiences of their lives. But it was also when um, you know when Sarah Dosa, the director and one of the other writers of the film, you know, were, was confronting some of the material and reading reading through their book, she she found this line that is now at the end of the film, but was really a genesis point for us, where it says where Maurice says, "For me, Katya and the volcano, it is a love story," and that that was incredible, an incredible framing device for us to understand understand the story that would become Fire of Love. Yeah, I guess that's that separates it from other uh, stories that have been about volcanologists writ large or about the idea of pursuing science. This was this was a love story, or this is a love story. Exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think you know many scientists feel like they have to be detached from from what they study, and there's a cer- certain sort of aspirational objectivity that they pursue. And I think that wasn't really present for Maurice and Katya. You know, they they wanted to understand things and and factually and to see them clearly, but allowed themselves a kind of a kind of intimacy and a kind of a love for for the volcano for what they sought to better understand, even though they knew they could never fully understand it. And that was, I think, a really important part of our process too, where we didn't feel like we had to ha- have a or detached view. We could we could really get inside of the material and and uncover what what resonated for us in the story. But Jocelyn, maybe you have some some other ideas on that too. Looking at the foot, I mean, the footage that these these this couple captured over the years. I mean, there must have been just such an enormous amount of it that was so lovely and great, and I, I can't even begin to imagine how you how you created the arc and how you managed to find the pictures you were going to use and leave so much on the floor. It is was mesmerizing, enchanting. I think it was easy to. Get lose track of time watching this material. Hours would go by sometimes, and I just had to allow myself to take it in. I think one of the challenges in the edit room for us, knowing that we wanted to tell this love story uh, about these two people, is that they didn't film themselves that much. They filmed uh, lava, volcanoes, <laughs> rocks, and they also didn't film any footage really of their their life, at their, their sort of domestic life, or their. Right. You know, any anything that was not related to volcanology, those, I mean, that's, they did film surprising shots that weren't related to volcanology, but it was not of them usually, at least at first glance. But then what we did in the edit room is we had uh, one of our assistant editors go through all the material and find all the shots of Katia Maurice. And that was sort of one of the first steps that allowed us to see them in the material. Um, and it was like a major, major lift for, for this assistant editor to do that. But it was one of the first sort of steps for sure in, in understanding and, and seeing them and seeing these moments also that elicited more questions and <laughs> had us always kind of second guessing what we thought we knew. It um, did. And that was part of developing this more inquisitive perspective as well. Yeah, because because I you know not, not to use the term curated, but they kind of curated that footage. It was very much scientific, and but every once in a while, and I think your film captures it really beautifully. There are there are those little moments when they're dancing, when he's you know there's a, I believe there's a moment where he's frying an egg on on a lava, something really hot. Uh, these are just this is images I've seen all, all over the place. But you did manage to figure out how to portray that love story. How much footage was involved? We had roughly over like about 200 or so hours of, of their footage um, that they filmed. And then our archival producer also collected all of the other materials like television interviews and radio interviews. Then we had around 30 to 50 hours of, of that kind of material as well. Shane, one of the things I thought while watching this is that there is a certain point because, of course, they end up dying young, 49 for Katya, 45 for Maurice back in 1991. 
and you know that that's coming that this love story has a tragic end and in some ways that's you know that knowing that from the get-go is quite captivating at the same time there is a feeling throughout the movie where you're thinking don't do it like just you've seen enough now like don't go to japan he has that phone call where he says we're going to japan we've just been back from martinique and you're thinking don't do it did you ever during the making of this ever sort of how is your relationship with them through this yeah, no, that that was an important part of the the story for us was to to put their death earlier in the film because we didn't want the film to be about this the sort of ticking clock of of two individual lives that we wanted to tell a story about about two human lives but also tell a story of geologic time too where where one life ends another one begins um, and you know Maurice even though you're feeling even though you know they're going to die at the end we we wanted to make the film more a celebration about the way they lived and about life in general and to do that you need to also recognize that death is a death is not separate from life death is a part of life and they're they're incredible teachers of that yeah, I think throughout it, uh, there are moments where both she mentions sort of watching him walk ahead because she knows that if he goes, she will too. Uh, there are these moments where they where they sort of, you know, that um, it is about following your dreams. I mean, following your dreams sounds trite, but it is about the overwhelming power of passion, I guess would be a better way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, they stepped to the to the edge of creation, to the source of creation. And I think once they saw that, there was very little else they wanted to do that that was their their all-encompassing pursuit and and love affair together and they they knew that they could only accomplish that with each other too and so that was also a part of a part of their love and i think they recognized also you know in in certain moments in the film you see this that it wasn't life was always trying to be as close to volcanoes as possible but there were other parts of life too and they had to sort of come to terms with that and understand how to live with and without volcanoes and try and bring as much of that into their daily life as possible. Jesslyn, I, I, watching it, I was struck by a couple of things. One, they sort of predated the whole notion of the storm chaser, which became very much part of sort of the much more digital age of media where things were easily trans, you know, you could transmit stuff much more simply. And also thinking about you know, these days, would we need a Katia and Morris? Now we have drones. We have so many ways of, of watching this stuff without having to be so close to it. Um, I'm wondering if, if they not only represent a love story, but also a love story of a different time. Yeah, their time as volcanologists is a specific period of volcanology that we won't see again or that we haven't seen again. It was a time when there wasn't much documentation of volcanoes and and so their imagery, while spectacular, was also data. In the you know late sixties, seventies, eighties, when they were doing their work, we just didn't have, yeah, all, all these images. So in fact, when you look up certain volcanoes on official like geological websites, see their images pop up as sort of the uh, model <laughs> image of this type of volcano. So yeah, they represent a, in in a way a time capsule as far as the field of volcanology goes. We are, we are beings that be and become, you know, that we are always trying to pursue the boundaries of what's possible and always trying to grow. And that's part of our makeup. And whether it's doing that in a field of scientific inquiry or, or, or any of the myriad of other ways, I think that's, that's was Maurice and Katya. And I think that will continue to be humans and to the much, much smaller extent. I think we try to push the boundaries and what we do too in this film. Yeah, I imagine that's part of its appeal. I mean, it's been very well received everywhere it's gone. It's up for an Oscar, obviously. Uh, what do you think the, there is clearly people have had an emotional connection to it, not just a scientific connection to it. And yet it's a wonderful science film as well, the Nat Geo linked to it clearly. But people I gather have had a real emotional connection to it too, Jocelyn. Yeah, I've gathered that as well. And it's, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy that the film has had that connection and has resonated this much. And that was, I mean, I, I think it's how we we framed it from from the get go as as a love story and a story about not just love between humans, but love of of our home, the earth, and and allowing ourselves to be wowed by the earth. Just just thinking that as we speak right now, there are volcanoes erupting and there is lava flowing. I mean, that for me hits me um, not just at a cerebral level, but in a yeah, it hits my sense of wonderment, I think. Yeah, I've seen volcanoes. I've seen lava in, in Hawaii. It, it is it is remarkable. I could see why they loved it so much. What I what I 
what's so inspiring about them is how they never lost that curiosity. They're always going to watch it again. You know, where sometimes people would just say, "Oh, I've seen, you know, I've seen enough now. I've I've survived this. I'll I'll pack it in." They never, they were never going to pack it in. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think their story and and the way that they chose to just go for what they loved um, and to keep getting closer to that, I think, also really hits that note of living, <laughs> really living. Um, they they really set such a, a a wonderful example of pursuing something in the name of of love and knowledge yeah for, for the last question for both of you when you walked when you walked away from this project what what did you take out of it having seen and listened and written and absorbed so much of their story uh and their deaths uh, what did you walk away with it with it's along the lines of what shane was was mentioning around creation destruction and, and the sense of continuity and, and not necessarily uh you know, death not really being so final in, in life. For me, that that was a big takeaway, especially that the materiality of, of our earth and how it's always churning and, and we're a part of that as well. And there are these shots in the film of these close-up shots of Katya, you know, very carefully pointing out one detail in these layers of sediment and you see her hand go up and there's a stone on her. She's She has a ring. And in those shots, I just think really of dissolution of, of delineation between the human and the mineral. <laughs> That's really stuck with me. Yeah. And for, and for your same question for you, Shay, what did you walk away with uh, from this one? Because it is amazing what, what's happening. I was doing something last week on, you know, the, the core of the earth had stopped spinning and just thinking how little we know about how much is going on under our feet. Absolutely. I, I think just the, the the pursuit of understanding, just how, how powerful it is to take with us, understanding each other, understanding the planet. And that understanding is another another way of of loving and another way of loving each other, another way of loving this world that sustains us and is so beautiful. Well, Shane and Jocelyn, I wish you the best of luck come Oscar night. And uh, thank you so much. And, and there are others up as well. Congratulations on the awards already won. And thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We think back to the height of the early days of the pandemic. It's hard not to think about what was exposed about long-term care homes in this country. I think anyone who had spent time in one, uh, even as a reporter, in my case as a reporter and with family uh, family members in long-term care, you always suspected that the system was fragile, that something like something like a pandemic might expose some real issues. And sure enough, I mean, the numbers were staggering. I think back to those early days. And uh, I saw some numbers recently. I don't know how up to date they are, or how much they've changed. But, you know, LTC residents accounted for 3% of all COVID-19 cases up to a certain point in this country and 43% of COVID-19 deaths over those first three waves uh, of the pandemic. Just staggering, staggering numbers. So obviously something has to be done. I think a lot of provincial governments, of course, it's a provincial jurisdiction. A lot of provincial governments have started to try to figure out how that can happen. Uh, and the federal government has promised to do so as well. In the meantime, experts have been looking at this to provide some guidance. And the standards for care uh, for long-term homes have been updated. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Ottawa is talking to the provinces and territories about those new standards that were released today uh, for the quality design and operations of long-term care homes in this country. The Health Standards Organization released those standards uh, today saying that residents should get at least four hours of direct care every day. Uh, those who care, who work in those homes, must be paid more. Um, the Prime Minister says he'll look into it. We recognize the responsibility and the jurisdiction of provinces in these areas, but I think all Canadians, regardless of the order of government, uh, want seniors to have the best quality of care possible, and that's what we're going to continue to work on. There's the Prime Minister today talking about those new standards. Now, typically, it would be up to provincial, to provincial governments to mandate the standards if they so choose. But in the last election, the Prime Minister promised to legislate safety in long-term care homes across the country. And this is supposed to help him, you know, this is the guide, essentially. Now, the health critic for the NDP says the Liberals must enshrine these new standards for long-term care homes in law to fulfill a pledge in the confidence and supply agreement that will help keep their minority government in power. Here's NDP MP Don Davies. We need to make sure that, that long-term care homes um, are meeting the standards that are set in legislation, the minimum standards. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, what long-term care legislation requires. And if, if it's going to be safe, then those standards have to be in the legislation. 
Now, joining me now with more on this is Dr. Samir Sinha. He's Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and the University Health Network in Toronto and Chair of the Technical Committee that developed the updated standards. Uh, doctor, thank you so much. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ben. Now, this is a really important topic. Um, what did you set out to find in order to make sure that these recommendations uh, met what you hoped they would achieve? Well, as you see, just help to recap kind of the, the horror that we started to live in 2020 when we saw that Canada led the world in the percentage of its deaths occurring in long-term care homes. You know, we had a national distinction that we should never have wanted to hold. And it really showed us, as you said, about the weaknesses that we had because we've chronically understaffed the sector. Um, We didn't have very strong standards. And that's why, you know, towards the end of 2020, the, the government announced, the federal government announced, that they would support the development of new national long-term care standards. That got tasked to their crown agency, the Standards Council of Canada, and then that came to HSO, uh, who chose me as their chair to kind of start that process. And that process really involved us uh, making sure we had a committee that represented uh, people who lived in long-term care homes, um, people who were essential uh, care partners or family members of those living in long-term care homes, frontline workers with you know, years of experience um, who know how long-term care homes should operate. And then we consulted with close to 20,000 Canadians to tell us what mattered most to them and what long-term care should look like. And then reviewing all the latest evidence from around the world to say, how can Canada develop the best national standards? So that's what we have in front of us today. We have standards that are evidence-based. Uh, we have standards that have, uh, that have been based on consultations with Canadians and standards that we know are achievable uh, and are practical and can be the basis of accountability formats such as inspections, uh, enforcement mechanisms, accreditation. So really, we've laid this down in the laps of all politicians who are saying they're ready to receive billions more from Ottawa in exchange for being more accountable. I couldn't think of a better gift than giving them standards that actually could help them be more accountable. Yeah, certainly in long-term care. Did you sense that, th- that amongst all those who knew this industry so well, was there any sense of surprise about what had happened at the height of the pandemic, that, that such flaws had been exposed? You know, I think there was, I think, I think people were surprised, but I think those people who were surprised were genuinely deluding themselves or just basically ignored how bad the problems were. Those of us who had studied the long-term care system understood kind of where its weaknesses lay. Uh, we're not surprised. Um, in fact, we're, we're saddened to see how devastating things could be. And frankly, even for those people who kept their head in the sand, it took our Canadian military to really point out that, you know, we were our own worst enemies. We were directly underfunding these systems. We had staff that were working in a culture of fear um, that didn't feel supported. And we had residents whose, frankly, care was based on you know, completing a bunch of tasks like getting them fed and watered, as opposed to really focusing on improving their quality of life and making sure that uh, um, the last home in which they would live in could be a home that could provide quality care in a home-like environment. So I think this really showed us a lot of the things that uh, that we could easily start to uh, to to fix if we put our minds to it. Yeah, I think perhaps the most shocking part of it all was just to realize, you know, how how a society cares for its elderly is a real reflection of the society itself. And that was a really difficult mirror to look into, I think, even as a, you know, even for someone like myself who doesn't have anyone in the care system now, but what has in the past, that was a really, that was a really tough mirror. What did you hear from Canadians about what they wanted? Uh, I know it sounds maybe like an obvious question, but what, what, what do people want from LTCs these days? I think people want to make sure that if you are a resident living in a care home, that care is based on your needs and it's respectful of your rights. It's respectful for how you want to live so that if you want to live, um, you know, with a certain level of risk where, uh, you know, that those your rights and 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 your needs will be respected first, um, that your choice of who you want to have visit you will be respected uh, and uh, and that the, those who are caring for you are getting good pay, are being well supported, because as we like to say, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. If we don't treat staff like human beings, if we don't make sure that there's a sufficient number so that they're not going to burn out and they have the time to provide the quality of care people need, 
um, then then we're going to start to get the balance right. But we also heard the importance of having strong leadership and governance structures, making sure that homes are actually designed, uh, you know, with with key elements in mind, uh, so that we should be packing two or three or four people into a room, but allowing people in these settings to have their own rooms, not just for privacy, but because it's better from an infection prevention and control standpoint. So these are all the things that came out um, and that the evidence clearly supports. And so that was our task, was to take all this information. And every, every single comment we received from Canadians, we summarized in three what we heard reports so that anybody can look at everything we heard, then look at the standard, and I dare anybody to say, you left this out, because we had a dedicated committee of 32 members who want to make sure everything that we heard was reflected in these standards, because we believe that we've now figured out from 20,000 Canadians what long-term care needs to look like, and now it's the province's and territory's job to help us get there. Uh, Dr. Sinna, tell me a bit about, I mean, I've read the headlines about what has been proposed, which is increasing pay, uh, more you know, four hours a day of direct care. Um, these seem like fairly straightforward suggestions. Are those the, the key ones in your, in your mind? Yeah, I think the key ones really focus on making sure that homes are appropriately staffed so that right now we know that um, having well-staffed homes allows staff uh, to be able to provide the care that residents want and need, but also making sure that staff have the right levels of training. They've got good quality jobs that are paid well, for example. And we're not talking about excessive pay. We're just saying pay them the same salaries they get if they would work in a publicly funded hospital, because these are all publicly funded long-term care homes. And then we talk about, you know, exactly what care looks like, how it should be delivered, but then also how to support the quality of life of residents by respecting their rights, but also including their family members um, and really supporting kind of, if you will, you know, the, the governance of a home and quality improvement and then even the physical design of a home to make it home-like but also make it safe. That's, that's summarizing two, we, two years of work in a yeah. nutshell, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know some of it is is long term stuff. You know, things about uh, how we build long term care in the future. What are some of the things that you think could be done in the short term that that would have a huge impact just on the quality we see day to day? Because I know there were complaints uh, about the system long before COVID came along. Yeah, so some of the things we talk about is that right now the good news is that sixty eight percent of uh, long term care homes in Canada have agreed to accredit themselves against the new standard. So that's great. You know, we have 100% of homes in Quebec that are actually legislated to actually follow the new standards and accredit them if they accredit themselves. But we have provinces like British Columbia and Ontario where accreditation is largely voluntary uh, and that people can even choose to accredit themselves with non-Canadian standards, for example. So that's not really great to know that, oh, I might be in a home that's not even following the national standards that have been created. So I think the quick and easy things could be, why don't we have provinces follow the lead of Quebec and make sure that 100% of homes in Canada are going to be following these standards. Uh, provinces and territories, which have known about the development of these, le- of these standards for the last two years, you know, could easily legislate that their inspection and enforcement standards um, are going to be in line with these standards. Uh, and then, and then, and then most importantly, let's make sure that we fund long-term care properly because we know that prior to the pandemic, for example, in Ontario, we were funding homes to be providing 2.75 hours of care a day when the evidence was long suggesting that we should be funding at least four hours of care a day. Since, you know, over the last two years with various commissions and reports, Ontario relented and agreed to, to fund four hours a day. Nova Scotia's followed suit. Manitoba is close behind at 3.8. But we're talking about all provinces now agreeing to meet this need. And I'll tell you, Ben, money isn't the issue here. Right now, the premiers are going to be arm wrestling with the prime minister for billions of dollars of new funding. And the federal government already pledged in 2021 $3 billion to implement standards and to support improvements in long-term care. So there's money. That's not the issue. It's actually political will now to align care with these standards, fund care appropriately, so that we can make sure we never repeat what we saw during the pandemic ever again. Yeah, and, as, 
as you know well, the moment you talk healthcare, you're wandering into a bit of a jurisdictional minefield. I noticed today, of course, the Prime Minister was quite supportive. The NDP were very supportive. Uh, but in Ontario, the long-term care minister was, you know, we already have high standards. <laughs> so uh, it was interesting to watch. What do you think will have to be done on the political side to make sure that these standards uh, are implemented and implemented consistently across the country? Well, you know, I always like to say money, money talks, right? You know, you had all these, you know, you've had this jurisdictional bun fight where, you know, the provinces will quickly say, look, we're the ones actually providing long-term care services. We have the jurisdictional oversight, so leave us alone. You can't tell us what to do. But you, you've seen this debate evolve over the last few months where, you know, they're just saying to the prime minister, give us billions of dollars more and don't tell us what to do. And the prime minister's like, you know, healthcare looks like a gong show wherever you live in Canada. So you know what? I'll give you more money, but I need to have some accountability. Now you have the premiers of all the problems. Say, oh, we're happy to be accountable. You know, if you give us the money, so we're happy to. So there's, you know, when you have the the, the minister of long term care in Ontario immediately saying, oh, I'll take a look at these standards, and I don't want to water down, you know, Ontario's high standards. Well, I can tell you, I live in Ontario. I have patients. I've been working in this field for a decade. I can tell you, you know, our standards in Ontario didn't really get us great results during this pandemic, still aren't today. Are these standards that we've created with the input of 20,000 Canadians um, and the input of all the provincial and territorial governments um, are much stronger than what Ontario has right now um, and are not a far stretch than what Ontario, if they implemented this, could allow it to provide much better care. So we actually have the, the mechanisms here. And the federal government's already pledged money. The federal government's going to be pledging more money. Um, provinces are willing to be held accountable. Well, hello, we've got actual accountability standards. We've got standards that can be used to hold provinces and territories accountable. You know, you can give them money to, 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 to leverage what they want. And the federal government has talked about creating a new safe long-term care act with the NDP as part of their, their, um, their power-sharing agreement. So we've got all the mechanisms. I just think right now everyone wants to, you know, dance and, and be nice and everything. I think at the end of the day, Canadians know long-term care needs some real reform. We've got money. We've got standards. Let's just get on with it. Uh, we just need to get this done now. Well, Dr. Samir Sena, thanks so much. Congratulations on all the work. Uh, I, I, it's been well-received, and we'll catch up. We'll see what they do with this in the next months because uh, the clock is ticking, as you, as you pointed out today. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.